Take your Bibles and let's go to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2. The last time we left this narrative, Jesus was roughly six weeks old. And uh, in the coming weeks, the next time we're going to see him, he will be 30 years old. So Luke doesn't really give us any uh, great detail about the life of Jesus, nor do any of the other Gospels. In fact, this account that we're coming to at the end of chapter 2 is the only record we have of something in the boyhood life of Jesus, his childhood. This is it. This is, as you, if you will, a boyhood glimpse of the Messiah, because here in this account, and the very reason Luke puts it here, is to teach us the two great realities about the person of Jesus Christ. Number one, he is, of course, God. He is the anointed one. He is the one God favors. He is the grace, the one upon whom the grace of God resides. He is the one empowered by the Spirit as the Messiah. He is God of very God in human flesh. But it is also true that he is fully human. I can't go into the numerous uh, theological difficulties and mysteries involved in the study of the God-man and how it is he can be both fully God and fully man in two natures in one person that never mix. They never diminish one another. They never mix. And yet they are co-existent in one person. There's great mystery surrounding it, great theological depth, and of course wonders to behold in contemplating them. But we're not given any details here other than the illustration of the reality that he is both God, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, and he is human, fully human. It's an absolute marvel what Luke gives us here. Now, there's all kinds of apocryphal stories about the childhood of Jesus, and uh, one of the reasons I think we have such scant information about the childhood of Jesus is because we would have taken even accurate stories and messed them up. We would have pushed past what God has given us and tried to invent things. Human beings at their very heart are fanciful because we love our own pride. We love to reveal things to ourselves. We love to imagine things that are beyond what God has revealed. And the fundamental reason for that is we do not like to believe God and leave it there. We don't like to submit to what he's told us. Even the account here of one little incident in the adolescent life of Jesus, people have turned into a mess. But the apocryphal writings in the early centuries of the church are renowned. There were several of them, all kinds of gospels that aren't canonical. They're not of divine inspiration, but they were written. And they, they teach all kinds of strange and bizarre things about the alleged childhood of Jesus. One account has Jesus talking to Mary in the manger, telling her he's the Son of God as an infant. Another account says that the swaddling clothes were given to the shepherds and they went back to the hillside and, and being of the, uh, it is assumed that they were of the Zoroastrian religion, they would build a fire uh, to their ideology and they threw the swaddling clothes in and they did not burn and the men rejoiced. Another account said a man was turned into a mule by a sorcerer and the man's sister told Mary and he put the baby Jesus on the back of the mule and instantly the mule turned back into a man. A leprous woman was healed by washing in Christ's bathwater. A child Judas, this was interesting, child Judas was allegedly possessed by a demon. We could probably believe that. But he had a reputation for biting. 
Hello, every infant has a reputation for biting. <laughs> every toddler. Anyway, he couldn't succeed, but instead he hits Jesus, and Jesus heals him of the devil in one account. When Jesus was seven, he played with other boys, made clay animals. They walked, they flew, they ate. Playing hide-and-seek with some boys, this is interesting. Some women threw the boys into a furnace. What? But Jesus transformed them into baby goats. Jesus transformed them back into boys unharmed by the furnace. Jesus was accused of throwing a boy off a roof. He caused the dead boy to live, and the boy then acquitted him. Sent to school to learn the alphabet, but teaches the schoolmaster. And when the teacher asked Jesus the alphabet, Jesus asks a question. The teacher raised his hand to whip Jesus for insubordination and fell dead. I mean, just all kinds of things that really are conjured in the imagination of the human mind because we cannot stand letting revelation be left where God leaves it. And so I'm thrilled that we are given a small glimpse, but I'm far more thrilled that that's all we're given. And it is an amazing story. In fact, it's very interesting what you have here. You have in verse 40 a a brief biography in summary. And in verse 52, sort of a bookend on the back side, you have another brief biography. The first biography in verse 40 goes from the six weeks uh, to 12 years old. So about the time they came out of the temple and went back after they'd performed all that was according to the law, verse 39 says, uh, they went to Nazareth. Well, you know that what happened after that is not recorded by Luke, but it is recorded by Matthew that they were warned in a dream that Herod, the usurper king, was trying to kill the child, having heard he was a king. And so... They were told to go down to Egypt. And so they go down to Egypt for what was probably somewhere around three or four months, all the way, perhaps, some accounts say, up to two years. Nonetheless, after that, of course, they came back and settled in Joseph's roots, which is Nazareth. We don't have any of that account here. What you have is that they return to their own city of Nazareth. And this is, of course, um, Jesus about maybe six weeks old or so, and then, of course, adding whatever it was, the time frame that they were in Egypt, he is a few months old or several months old or whatever. And then you have this biography from that period of time in toddlerhood to 12 years old. And all it says is that the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. You have a biography from the age of 12 to the age of 30, which occurs in verse 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And so what you have here are bookends that Luke gives to us to tell us these two great realities. And right in the middle of this biographical bookending is this illustration, this little narrative about Jesus at 12 years old. So the two great realities are he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. You'll see some flavoring of the favor and grace of God upon him in a moment in the narrative. But then you'll also note what Luke intends for us to hear from this text, and that is that Jesus is a man. He is fully human. Let's look first of all then at this first biography from somewhere in toddlerhood till the age of 12. Verse 40 simply calls him the child. He'll later be called by Luke a boy in verse 43. But here the term child is used 
And it says he continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now what you have, first of all, here is just natural growth. Alongside his spiritual growth, you have his natural growth. He continued to grow and become strong. The first term here clearly refers to his physical growth, the physical growth of a child from the early years of development through adolescence and then on into young adulthood and into the full maturity of adulthood later on. The term for he became strong, uh, it could go with the previous term, meaning that he became strong physically, although it would seem rather redundant. Or it could go with the second term, he was increasing in wisdom. It's interesting that back in chapter 1, verse 80, when referring to John the Baptist, you'll notice John or Luke uses the same phrase. Notice chapter 1, verse 80, the child continued to grow and to become strong. Same Greek phrase. And of course, in reference to John the Baptist, he includes the word spirit, meaning his inner life became uh, fortified. As he grew, John the Baptist, as he grew and... and um, became a man, he went through the adolescent years into manhood, he became strong in spirit, meaning he developed as a man of strong inner fortitude. We might say he became a man of conviction. And Luke intends for us, by using the same phrase, to see that as the same thing here with regard to Jesus. He was a human, and he was an infant who grew into an adolescent boy, and then on into adulthood the same way everyone does, And yet in Jesus' case, it says here that he continued to grow and become strong or fortified. Same idea. He became a person of inner strength. So given that Luke uses the exact wording here, we should probably see it as the same thing. He continued to grow in his inner life, developing into a formidable young adolescent. He was a strong individual, and he clearly was developing convictions much like anyone else would, although, as we'll see in a moment, these are remarkable development years for Jesus. Suffice it to say that what we're to know here is that he's like us. He matured mentally. He matured by going from being young and going from the ignorance of the early years of childhood to greater understanding On a daily basis, he had to learn things. He had to grow in his understanding. He had to ask questions of his parents. Uh, He had to listen to the answers. He had to frame up principles and take those principles and apply them. In his earliest years, he had to learn vocabulary. He had to learn to speak the language of the day and communicate. You're beginning to see a little bit of the mystery that is involved in this wonderful thing we call incarnation. God in human flesh, absolutely God, 100% God, with divine nature, and yet going through normal human development. As I said, he had to listen to his parents. He had to listen to his dad teach him things. He had to carefully consider and apply the principles. He had early childish questions and had to be having those questions answered, and then he had to develop his reasoning skills. Now, lest we get confused here, it's, it's true that he has a divine nature and so he is God and he has the fullness of the Godhead in him, a fullness of God's essence in him, in his divine nature. So he really can't learn anything. He knows everything in his divine nature. He, he can't be minimized in his divine knowledge. 
His knowledge is absolute. It's infinite. He's always known everything that can be known as God. And his knowledge can never be reduced. But here, in the person of the God-man, Jesus also possessed a full human nature. And so, as a man, he had to grow and develop like every other human being. Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself and took on human nature. He took on the form of a slave being found in the likeness of a man, the pattern of a man, the same pattern that you see in us. He took on humanity. To empty oneself uh, meant that God can't empty his godhood, he can't empty his deity, but to empty himself meant that he literally put it behind or in a shroud of humanity. In other words, he set aside all that his divine nature meant and humbled himself by taking on a human nature. What a mystery. He brought himself under the limitations of humanity. Now, when Luke tells us that he grew, it's, it's obvious to us that without sin, you would grow in a different way in your mind. I mean, this was true of Jesus. His developing mind wasn't plagued by any sort of uh, morally blinding effect of sin. There was no sense in which his mind uh, became twisted. There was no sense in which his human reason had the noetic effects of sin upon it. That's what we call it in theology, the fallen effects of sin. He wasn't corrupted. And so all the ways that sinful corruption sort of compounds our errors and our reasoning ability was completely absent in Jesus. He did feel every part of our frailty. He did feel all of our limitations. He experienced all that it meant to be in human flesh. But whatever he learned, he developed it and it stayed with him in full measure unhindered. Now, that is a staggering reality because you can imagine now why it is that nothing is written about that time period in his life. It just would have seemed bizarre. He didn't put it on display, although it would have been probably noticeable to some degree. But he didn't go boasting about his childhood in those years. There was nothing to say. He quietly brought himself under subjection to his parents. He quietly obeyed and submitted. And there was nothing to say. He wasn't publicly confirmed in his ministry yet. He wasn't fully grown and ready to be confirmed as the Messiah, as will happen at his baptism in chapter 3. He was young, and yet there must have been an amazing reality to the way he took in knowledge and began to appropriate it. And as he approached the adolescence and his early manhood, he must have been some kind of a specimen of intellectual strength and discernment and wisdom, even at that young age, as childhood flowered into adulthood. His normal human physical development is referred to again in verse 52. He grew in stature, literally means age or the the life stages, sometimes translated maturity. He grew in the normal stages of life. But notice also in verse 40 that he grew in wisdom. He was increasing in wisdom. And this has to speak to his spiritual dimension. He grew in his ability to take what is truth and apply it to the human condition with knowledge and wisdom and discernment. 
He must have taken truth, and as he learned it, he applied it to the fallen world around him. He, he, he let it be the weapon that it is against temptation. As I said, his divine nature couldn't grow. So this must mean that Jesus' humanity grew in the sense that his spiritual ability to know and wisely apply the truth began to increase. So if you think about it, this means that as Jesus grew, he not only developed intellectually, but he he took the truth he taught, and from his childhood, he perfectly applied it to his human life in the growing years. So, So he heard the scriptures, just like you and I. He was tempted to ignore them because of the frailties of humanity and weakness and frailty in terms of sleep, you know, and tired and fatigue and uh, all of the things that we experience in the, in the vicissitudes of life. He heard the scriptures in that same context, and yet he applied them faithfully. He heard it from the teachers of Israel who taught in the synagogues. He had meditated on the Old Testament that he'd been taught by his parents and that he had mem- memorized. He had asked questions and heard answers. All of that was a part of him gaining the truth through the early years, and then year by year, his childish understanding of spiritual things began to deepen, and it became clear. That's an interesting principle when we're taught in the Scriptures that he understands our weakness and our infirmities, because it means that he had to go to the truth just like you and I did. He had to take in the truth just like you and I do. He had to learn to understand it and apply it and watch it work. He took his divine nature and set aside temporarily the privileges of knowing everything and brought his mind, his human mind, into subjection to the process of human development and growth. He wasn't born an adult. He had to grow into that in his human nature. And so he subjected himself to that process of gaining the truth and learning and applying it and letting it sink in. And yes, he was without sin, so there was no, there was no morally blinding aspect to it. There was no error that was a result of having yielded to temptation. So he was piercingly discerning, no doubt. And we'll see some of that in a moment. But he still had to do what you and I do. The Spirit of God was influencing him in his humanity and he had to take the Word of God and put it in and the Spirit of God was beginning to make it a spiritual depth in his mind and heart. It's encouraging to know that the Lord knows what that's like. He knew what it was like as a young adolescent to want to go run around, to have the temptation to go run around and neglect the truth and even sin against the truth Though he never yielded to that temptation, he brought his mind and heart under the truth by learning it and applying it in faith. Now, his mind wasn't free from temptations, as I said, but he did never yield. So the effects that we experience by taking one step forward spiritually and three steps backward, he never had that. Everything just built on the next. He was tempted in the same ways, but he always met those temptations with the truth he was taught. And so it just compounded in wisdom and in his mind. He was never clouded by unbelief or some sort of self-exalted heresy that sort of clouded his thinking. He applied it in perfect faith. He resisted temptation. He believed the truth without a single failure, even, even with the mental limitations of boyhood. It's just impossible to imagine. So by the time he gets to the 12-year-old time period, he is a specimen of fortitude, both physically and 
mentally and then spiritually, morally speaking. That he learned how to apply the truth. Sometimes Christians wrongly assume that Jesus can't understand our infirmities because he never, he never failed. They sometimes assume he never understands the experience of the limits of living in humanity and, and being human in a fallen world or that somehow he doesn't understand the frailties that we do. Or they imagine that being God, he couldn't truly feel the strain and the pressure that come when you and I have to battle temptation. He just never felt it. Well, that's not true. He did feel it. The truth of the matter is that being fully human, Jesus immersed himself completely into humanity so that he did experience every limitation of the sin-cursed world and he faced all of that, including all of its temptation in this earthly life that we could ever face, and then some. How do we know that? Because he never actually failed. So the temptation, the sinister, voracious sort of appetite for tempting sinners that is in Satan, that devious ferocity of evil's enticements came against Christ more than it ever comes against you and me. We don't have any idea of the schemes that, that Satan was mounting even in Jesus' boyhood. We don't have any idea what came against him from 12 years old to 18 years old when he started his ministry. We do know this. He never yielded, so Satan was working overtime. One sin would have destroyed our salvation. Just one. Never happened. I'm so glad it never happened. He applied the truth in his humanity. He understood. He was fully human and he had all of humanity's finite existence. He had to grow. He had to develop. He felt oppression. He knew enemies. He was bound by time and space. He had limited knowledge. He had to develop it in his human nature. And he had physiological frailty. He could feel pain and he could be atrophied and he eventually died. But he was without sin. And so even though he was clothed in nature and weakness, he bore up under those temptations. We're too weak for that. We're too weak, and, and God knows it. And so when he saves us, he puts the Spirit of God inside of us and says, now believe my word and, and put yourself under the disciplines of the graces in the New Testament and, and come under the truth of all of Scripture and apply it in your life by faith, and the Spirit will empower you to grow. But, you know, we know the reality is without a renewed and resurrected body to go with our inner man that's being renewed, we're done. We still have a war going on inside of us with the old appetites that we still love more than Christ. Jesus never failed even one time. So is it any wonder then, just, just for some encouragement here, that Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. Look, that's a reality. Don't ever, in your difficulty, say God doesn't understand. He understands it. He went further than we ever went in it. You say, oh, but he never felt the weight of, of what it means to fail and feel the guilt of it compounding and the dark tunnel that that is. Yes, he did. You know what? He felt all of the guilt of every sinner who would ever believe, yet he never actually deserved to. He knows what your dark tunnel of guilt feels like. He paid for that. He knows what your dark tunnel of compounding failure feels like. He wore that. Even the sins we commit, he died 
so that we might be forgiven of those sins. How could this be? Verse 40, And the grace of God was upon him. That is, that's divine favor. And look at verse 52. It says that he grew in favor with God and men. That's a throwback to 1 Samuel. You remember? It said the same thing of Samuel. He grew in favor with God and men. What does that mean? When God puts his divine favor on his servant, and in this case, the Messiah, when God put his divine grace and favor upon him, he brought the protection and provision of the Spirit of God. And when God did that, there was tremendous strength. There was strange and wonderful mystery. There was beyond human intellect and wisdom. This is clearly an early reference to the protection of the Holy Spirit, the provision of the Holy Spirit, and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. So Luke is right here letting us know that this is none other than the Anointed One, the Christ, the Messiah. This is a glimpse of the Messiah's boyhood. He hadn't yet been visibly and audibly consecrated, as I said, which happens at his baptism, but here he is from growth in his early childhood to the age of 12, he has the marks of divine wisdom from the Spirit's special grace. And that brings us to this sweet little narrative which moves very quickly. Verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. What's happening there? Well, every year um, they went up. They weren't required to go up every year. Three times, three major festival, high festival times, a, the male was to go up and do the sacrifices in Jerusalem. Um, when the exiles came back, most of them didn't have enough money to even do that. And certainly the wives were not required to go during those three uh, lifetime required high festivals, as it says in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But it's interesting, Mary and Joseph went every year at the Feast of the Passover. Verse 42, when he became 12, why is that significant? Because at 13, he would have become a son of the covenant. The bar mitzvah was to become a son of the law. In other words, he would, at 13, be held responsible for his own interaction with the law of God, his own adherence to it as a full-grown male, even though he's only 13. So here, at 12, he's coming up to the high festival, and he is piqued in his interest, because each year they prepared. And when you were 12, it was, it was hey, one year left. So you come in and, and you're sort of putting the final touches on your preparation for your ultimate ordination as a young boy in Israel. That's what was happening. And so here his sensitivities are heightened. And they went up there according to the custom of the feast. Uh, went up there, by the way, was sort of the, the beginning of Luke using terminology, which he'll then refer to in verse 44, a caravan. When they went up, they went up with a large group of folks it helped them stay protected. The roads were on the way to Jerusalem, very dangerous. And uh, so Jews would travel in large packs, large caravans with family and relatives and people from the community. And as they would travel, they would sing together in preparation for the festival week, which was an entire week long. And uh, you only had to stay two days for the sacrifices and then you could go home. But it's interesting that Mary and Joseph stayed the full number of days, verse 43, verse 43 says. So maybe upwards, some, some historians tell us, upwards of 200 people in a caravan. Uh, so they, were, they went up in that caravan, and verse 43 says, as they were returning, so they'd all spent there, all that they went up with, relatives and friends, in this caravan, stayed there the entire seven days. 
And as they were returning, so they're already on their way, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents weren't aware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan. Well, that's obvious. This is a quite, quite a natural thing that happens. Uh, a son could get lost. A young boy with his friends could get lost. But you would imagine he would have left with the caravan. That's certainly what they imagine. Oh, he's just somewhere with a friend or a family in the group. In fact, they were so unconcerned about it that they went a day's journey. Verse 44 says, Now, this is every mother's nightmare, you know. A lost child. Uh, Maternal instincts kick in, and and, um, of course, both the parents were concerned because they had gone a day and still hadn't heard from him. It's interesting that verse 43 says, He stayed behind in Jerusalem. That's interesting. It's almost as though as the caravan pulled out, the indication is that Jesus understood that The festival was over. They stayed the full number of days. It wasn't like he was staying thinking it was still festival time. Jerusalem was emptying as it relates to the festival groups. Jesus is captivated by something. He is totally focused in another direction. He's not disobeying here. It's just a normal time in the life of Jesus whereby, listen, the Spirit of God at some stage must have revealed to him that whenever he read the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61, whenever he read Isaiah 53, whenever he read the Old Testament prophets and it spoke of the anointed one of the Messiah, he was it. We're not told when in his early childhood that he was made aware of that, but as he grew and he developed in wisdom and increased and understood the Scriptures, the Spirit of God, by the favor and grace of God, revealed it to him. You are my servant, my anointed one. And here he is at 12, coming into the flower of adult thinking, and he's aware. So he comes into Jerusalem at festival time. He is on full sensitivity about the things of the Old Testament. Messianic revelation, salvation come to God's people, and the issues of the soul. And so he stays behind. And it doesn't bother him that night falls. And it doesn't bother him that another day goes by and another night falls. Notice, they began looking for him, verse 44, among their relatives and acquaintances. They went through the whole caravan. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. The implication is that at the end of the day's journey, they had to stay a night. They were a day away from Jerusalem. And they stayed, they they searched through the caravan into the wee hours of the night. Then they slept a bit and then headed out. Probably not a good night's sleep. And they headed back and they looked another whole day in Jerusalem. Didn't find him. Slept another night in Jerusalem. Don't know where he's at. Probably not another good night's sleep. And then a third day. And they searched. Verse 46 says, after three days, they found him. (laughs) But it wasn't what they expected. (laughs) This is amazing. They find him not with some family, not playing with some boys, not doing what 12-year-old boys do. Uh, It took them three days to find him because they wouldn't have searched in the temple, at least not in the rabbinical area where Q&As took place between the doctors of theology. And that's what was happening. They found him in the temple, look at this, sitting in the midst of the teachers. 
Now you can get the scene. This is like 15 to 20 Dr. Zimmicks. <laughs> and they're sitting around and they're talking theology and a crowd develops behind them and around them to listen to the the high doctors of theology discuss Old Testament doctrine, Old Testament prophecy, and its application to redemption, and the plan of God, and the people of God, and the law of God. And this is high festival time, so whoever didn't travel into Jerusalem as a doctor of theology stayed in the temple area, so these would have been some of the highest. They were there, they were assigned to the temple, they were a part of Jerusalem's elite theologically. And they come in and not only, they, they didn't see Jesus standing there listening with the crowd, curious about what adults do. He was sitting in the midst of them, so he, had, he took sort of the rabbinical position. Why? Not because he foisted himself upon them, he would never do anything so disrespectful, that would be sin. But he came in and he must have asked them some questions that were so profound and out of the ordinary, they began to talk with him. And notice it says, he was both listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So he was asking questions, doing a little Q&A with them, and they were answering him, and he was bringing implications, and he was looking at different angles, and he was bringing in depth, this is odd. This is amazing. It says that they were amazed at his understanding. It is, it is, um, they are stunned because no way in their learnedness, in their years of school and education, no way in the number of debates they've had about theology, no way in the defending of the Old Testament against the society they lived in, no way could this young 12-year-old boy know and have experienced theologically and doctrinally more than them. Absolutely no way. And yet, they put him in the center of this discussion because he can and I would imagine that even in that discussion, they probably wanted to dispense with so young a boy, probably asked him some questions to challenge him, and it didn't change a thing. He still knew. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. <laughs> yeah. But not because they heard him, although they may have come up respectfully on the, on the mob. They were astonished and... Notice it's his mother that says something. I could just imagine, you know, as they're coming up on the Temple Mount and seeing the rabbis and the doctors of theology and all the respectful pomp and circumstance, and there he is in the middle, and they're engaging him. They're not throwing him out. I imagine they're coming up, and I can only imagine Joseph saying, now listen, let's not overdo this here. I know he's been gone for three days. I know we're anxious, but, I mean, he's safe. He's okay. Let's just find out what's going on. But since Mary probably gave this account to Luke personally, she's telling him her side of it. No, I came in and I spoke. Just like a mom would. Son, why have you treated us this way? She's not saying, uh, the, the text isn't implying that Jesus sinned against them. What, is, what she's saying is, I've never seen this behavior before. You're always with us. In fact, I've never had to do a thing to discipline you. You're always with us. You always conform. When we say something, you learn it. You're the model offspring 
what is going on here? Three days? Look at this. Behold, that's urgency. Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Of course, Jesus is totally, totally unaware, at least insofar as how many days have passed, because that's not his focus. His focus isn't on his urgent relationship with his parents. His focus is changing. He is becoming prepared to become a full man. And at 12 years old, he's sitting captivated by doctrine and Old Testament and theology and the matters of the soul. And so he says to his mother, why is it that you were looking for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's affairs? House is not in the text. In my father's things. Man, I... We came for the festival week. I've got, to be, I've got to be talking doctrine. I've got to be talking truth. I care about the souls of men. I'm looking to redemption. I have to be about, and notice this, my father's things. She had said, your father and I. Who did she mean? Joseph. He said, no, no, no. My father? I have an earthly guardian, but my father is my interest. His word is my interest. These men who purport to teach my people... Doctrine are my interest. Wow, this is amazing. Do you know what that tells me? That tells me when the grace of God and favor of God is on his people. And of course, Jesus is different because he's the Messiah. We're not the Messiah. But it works the same way when the Spirit of God comes in a believer and the grace and favor of God begin to permeate your life. There's a gravitational pull toward the things of God and the matters of the soul. This is why it is so devastating when a church and the people who profess Jesus Christ get so immersed in things that don't really matter. We ought to be in the world, but not of it. We ought to be operating in our spheres of influence, being faithful and dutiful with all of those relationships with the pagan world around us, but not of it. As if it's most important. No, we... We promote what's above, not the things that are on the earth. When the grace and favor of God begin to flower in a believer, the Spirit of God makes you gravitate toward things that really matter. I'll tell you, that's so true in our Christian life. The more you know the Word of God, the more you believe it by faith, the more the grace and favor of God begins to build discernment in your mind so that when you walk up on a scenario in the world, you automatically already can size up the spiritual issues and matters of the soul that are going on. And sometimes Christians who are neglectful of the Word of God and neglectful of true faith in believing the Word of God, they walk up on the same scenario and they're totally affected by trivial things. There's the difference. Jesus, at 12 years old, is not affected by what human beings typically get concerned about. I'm in my father's affairs. What are you talking about? This is very messianic. Verse 50, they didn't understand the statement which he'd made to them. Now, it doesn't mean that they got angry because Mary pondered these things again in her heart. She treasured them. She held them as a, as a wonder and, and a cause for awe. But yeah, he'd never said that before. He'd never stayed in the temple before. They'd been up every year. He'd never stayed behind. They'd never lost him for three days and found him amidst the doctors of the, of the Israeli contingency at the top. He never found him in the center of the Sanhedrin before. Twelve years old, they highly expected him to be running around with boys his age, and here he is in the middle of all of it and says, why were you looking for me? Why why are you concerned? 
I know you're my earthly guardians, but surely you would know by now. I mean, I think it was a, a little bit of a, don't you read? Don't you believe? His wisdom astounded the wise and his, his absolute God-like and spirit-filled discernment astounded his parents. But then he showed God's favor. Notice verse 51 again. This is amazing. He went down with them. They probably said, can we, can we just go back home now? Everybody's gone. Let's go. So he went. Oh, sure. There wasn't any argument. All right, I'll go a couple more years and I'm coming back here. There was none of that. He continued for 18 years till John the Baptist came on the scene and Jesus was baptized. So for 18 more years, he went down with them. All he's saying to them is, I'm captivated by something different. And that's so true. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And in these early days, he was already beginning to exhibit such captivation with the things of God. And yet he's fully human. He came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. Beloved, listen. If you ever struggle with submitting to the purposes of God, know this, that Jesus Christ did the same thing that he calls us to do. He could have said, look, I'm 12 next year. I'm a full son of the covenant. I can even outwit these theologians right now. I've proven that. So we're done here. Go back to Nazareth. I'll see you when I die. He could, have something, he could have done that, but that would not... That, and then he could have been accused of insubordination of his parents. It would have been sinful independence. The Son of God submitted to his parents. Young adolescents sometimes say, well, my parents are... They just... You know, does God really understand the parents I have to submit to? When a young adolescent comes to Christ... And his parents are unbelieving. That's why we always tell him, go submit to your parents. Jesus submitted, and he was the Son of God. He could outdo them, outdiscern them, outlive them. His parents were sinners, and he wasn't. But he continued in subjection to them. The, the present tense is that he continued for the rest of his time. He continued in subjection to them. This is absolutely marvelous and an encouragement to us. So Luke bookends it with, he kept increasing in wisdom and stature with fa in favor with God and men. So I'll, I'll close with this encouragement, Hebrews 4. Listen to this. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, there it is, then let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our infirmities. Don't ever imagine in your unbelieving heart that Jesus Christ does not sympathize with your infirmities. He's been through it all, grew through it all, withstood it all, believed in all of it. So that we might have a faithful high priest. 
And he is one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So every temptation, including far more than we've ever experienced, he did it and still held the righteousness of God. He held it up as his greatest affection, his greatest love, the very thing that the Spirit of God wants to inspire in you and I. So the writer says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So... You feel the infirmities, you feel the weakness, the lack of discernment, the limitations, the humanity, and your sin and the compounding guilt and the, and the moral blindness that comes from it. You feel all that? Hey, if you're in Christ today, you have the Holy Spirit within, you have the empowerment of God within you, the inner man to be renewed, and you can draw near, get close with confidence to the throne of God's grace. Why? So that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in that time of your need. And every believer here who's matured even one little step knows the experience in that dark moment when you believe God and He comes to your rescue. Because He can sympathize. You think when you pray to Jesus Christ about your struggle... Whatever the struggle is, no matter how dark the tunnel, you think when you pray to Jesus Christ that somehow He's not in heaven as an advocate knowing intimately the pain you're facing and the questions you have? Every single one of those questions He knows as a man. Not just as God, as a man. In human flesh. He walked through it. He pondered those questions. He sat with His God. He prayed. He thought about it. He agonized over it. He wrestled with temptations to not believe God. And he wrestled that will under the will of God by faith and never sinned in it. He knows what that battle's like. And the promise is when you draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, you receive his answer. Mercy in the time of your need. There is no doubt when we study the Gospel of Luke, we see the Son of God the power of Almighty God. But the richness of it is that the reason we can be forgiven is He was a man. Fully man. And so there He is as our advocate in heaven, helping us with our infirmities by the power of His Spirit, the same Spirit that empowered Him to say amazing things to those wise and learned men around Him. Over and over again, Luke's going to say they were amazed at his teaching. He spoke with authority. They were amazed at his teaching. They, he spoke with authority like no man had ever spoke. John seven forty six says. This is the God we serve. Isn't that great? This is the one who walks with us in our infirmities. At 12 years old, it was starting to show up. The next time we see him, he's going to have the Holy Spirit invisible and audible consecration come upon him at his baptism. Absolutely stunning affirmation and one that no doubt bolstered Jesus' own heart in his humanity. When he heard his father say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, it must have cemented his convictions as a man that he could believe his God when Satan was going to come with such fierce temptation in the wilderness and later in the garden. He did that for you and me. Isn't that amazing? Father, thank you for this morning, for the great account, though brief, and surrounded by no other accounts of your 
early life on earth. Thank you for it. Thank you that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace because you were a man. And you are a man resurrected in glory. And in eternity, you, you are the first fruit of resurrection, the firstborn from the dead. And we are the, those that come after who will receive our resurrection and have new bodies fashioned after your glorious body. Lord, we long for that day because we face temptation and infirmity every day and, and you don't audibly and visibly show up in our infirmity and say things to us and show us something as if we needed to see something or hear something. You have told us in your word what it was like for you. And we are called to believe what your word says, that you grew as a man, just like we grow. And you learned as a man, just like we learned. And you obeyed as a man, just like we are called to obey. And you suffered in this fallen world, just like we suffer. And you were tempted just like we're tempted, yet without sin. And you believed your heavenly Father. And so often, Lord, we don't believe you, but we pray that you, by your Spirit, would cause us to believe, that you'd strengthen us to believe, because you believed, and you yielded your will, and you loved your heavenly Father and kept the commandments. And may we be encouraged that you suffered and obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might have our sins forgiven. What a marvel you are. We stand in awe of you. We, we are amazed. As they were listening to a 12-year-old interact with deep theology, we're amazed at your person, that you're the God-man, that you came at all. We're amazed that we can be forgiven so thank you for your mercy, for this sweet, precious little story, and for the unfolding plan of redemption we'll have the privilege of studying. Lord, may we never cultivate a heart of unbelief. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.